Okay, once again, good morning. We are continuing our series on the hard sayings of the Bible this week, and today's hard saying is one that uh, really lives up to its name. Uh, in fact, uh, I decided to do this one as a result of a conversation that I had with one of your, your classmates just a couple of weeks ago, and, and it stemmed from what we talked about last time that I was uh, with you all in teaching. When we were talking about sheeps, sheeps, <laughs> sheep and goats, <laughs> sheeps is not right, right? It's just, we were talking about sheep and goats. That doesn't make sense. We were talking about geese and goats, gooses and goats. And as a, as a part of the, that, uh, there was some anxiety that went along with that, that verse. And at the end of the day, you know, you just want to be certain that you're one of the sheep. That's the reassurance that a lot of us are looking for when you, when you read verses like that. I, I just want to be reassured. I just want to have knowledge of the fact that, that uh, I am, in fact, numbered amongst the sheep. And, and today's verse has a similar feel to it, but I think it provides an added layer of complexity. You see what I mean by uh, that in just a bit. But, but all the passages in the series, you could probably classify them one of two ways. We could say this particular passage is hard uh, and once we pick up the context around it, it sounds problematic, but it's really not if you understand the, the context around it. Uh, it's a bit e easier to digest. But uh, the one that we're looking at today is, is kind of the ones that, uh, well, it's, it's just beyond that, oh, you just have to understand the context. It's just a hard saying. And uh, if you have children, or perhaps you have a memory of this when you were a child, but one of the joys that, that comes along with parenting is asking your children to eat something that they have no interest in eating. And what we've discovered is that we have two boys who have, who are now 14 and almost 16, and they have very different tastes. And uh, one is, is more willing to eat things, and, and uh, one is very uh, a little picky. You know, he's kind of picky with, with how he eats. One likes cheese, and the other one doesn't like cheese, which is just a tragedy. And I just, uh, I, I grieve over the fact that he doesn't like cheese. But, he, but the thing is, he will, he will eat the Mexican cheese dip. At the, he'll eat that all day long. And pizza, he's okay with pizza, too. He eats that. But if you have too much, it's just too much cheese. If you have a glob of cheese on, on pizza, well, that, that's a problem for them. Too much cheese is a problem. Now, as a parent, you want to make sure what you're dealing with here, not just dealing with general pickiness. So you tell them, come on, try it. At least try it. Try it. And what happens is our son will put on a brave face, face and put it, the, the, the item of food in his mouth, and we're watching him. And I'm just watching him. And sometimes he's able to get it down. And other times... Let's just say it doesn't make it past the driveway. It's like you know, the gears go in reverse sometimes. And it's like, okay, 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 okay. You don't like it. You don't like it. I get it. This is how some of these hard sayings are for us, if we're being honest. We consider it a hard saying because it's just, it's just hard. It's just difficult. And, and it's, it's not that it's hard to understand. It's more that it's hard to swallow. And, and we, we, we can't digest it because we can't get it past our mouth. And it's something uh, tough that Jesus is saying, frankly, we just sometimes wish, I wish you just wouldn't have said that, Jesus, but it, nevertheless, and this is, this is what we were talking about, if you, any of you all attended the Curious Christianity series that we had here, uh, when we were talking about things like election, it's, it's, it's hard to sidestep these topics, it's hard to sidestep those things because it's in the Bible. And it's right there. And we, we can't just pretend that it's not there. And there's something that's associated with it that's really hard. And, and we have to, to try and work our way through it. So what are we talking about today? If you're on the email list, you already know. And maybe you've had a day or so to think about it. 
comes from Matthew chapter seven and uh, folks joining us online. I know you can't see the screen behind me very well uh, and we can't see it very well in here either. Uh, but uh, so I'll, I'll be sure you have the, the scripture passages here to follow along. But uh, Matthew chapter seven and it begins at verse 21. Uh, you can listen to it or try and follow along up here. But Matthew 7, 21 and following, it says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And what I love about this and again, I didn't plan it this way because I was planning on teaching this maybe a couple of weeks ago uh, when I, before I got sick, but it goes along really well with what we just heard in, in, uh, in the sermon today. And uh, um, for those of you that haven't heard it yet, you'll, you ho hopefully you'll get to see how that ties together. Uh, but again, that was a great example. We saw today in Acts was, was an example of, of uh, this one person named Bar-Jesus, which is literally ironically named son of, son of Jesus, and he was a false teacher. He was trying to do things and claim the, the path of Jesus, but he was a false teacher, okay? And that has everything to do with what we're talking about here today. And so, but this is our hard saying. And though uh, we've only read three short verses, as always, it's important to understand the verses around it too. We got to understand context. And uh, um, uh, so keep in mind that as we consider what's being said here, the verses prior to this tell us beware of false prophets. Again, like we were discussing this morning, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's Sheep's possessive, uh, apostrophe S. I was going to say, sheeps, there it is, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous as wolves, okay? Then the four verses after this, okay, right after this are the verses that implore us to be like the guy who builds his house on the rock, right? As opposed to the guy who builds his house on the sand, which was decimated by the, the wind and the rains, okay? So these are the verses that frame, that go around this hard saying that we're looking at today. So if we're making a rough outline of what's being said here today in, in uh, Jesus's sermon, uh, the greater context would be something like this. So this is how uh, it's sort of uh, outlined. And again, I, uh, I first heard Tim Keller point this out, uh, these three points. And so uh, it goes something like this. Beware of false prophets. Okay, that's that upper section. And then it goes into the description of false prophets. And then it goes into the remedy, or he calls it the antidote, for being a false prophet. So those are the main three sections of the passages around uh, these verses. Now, seeing this, half of you might be tempted to say, or some of you might be tempted to say uh, in reference to our hard saying, okay, so this verse is particularly about false prophets, okay? It only pertains to false prophets. I'm not a false prophet and I'm not a prophet in general, and therefore I don't see have anything to worry about here. Okay, the other half you might be saying, what if I'm a false prophet? Uh, even though you may not be prophesying, this verse still frightens me enough to know that, that there are people out there who are proclaiming the name of the Lord, who are doing works in the name of the Lord that the Lord does not know. And again, something that Scott said this morning is that people that find value or use in the name of the G in Jesus, but have yet to find the beauty in the name of Jesus. Okay. And again, the thought that there are people out there that, that are doing things in his name, proclaiming his name that Jesus does not know, that can be terrifying. That can be really terrifying. Um, and this is, again, what makes it a hard saying, because what Jesus seems to be telling us is that there are people 
perhaps in our midst that are authentic Christians, and, and there are those who are not authentic or false Christians. And at the end of the day, again, we just want to know, am I numbered among the right crowd? How do I know? How do I know? And believe it or not, it is, this is a hard saying, but it comes down to something really very basic, and, and I'll get to that in just a little bit. Um, but again, uh, this verse is basically asking, like we were asking a few weeks ago, are you a sheep or are you a goat? And keep in mind, uh, what this is telling us, that there are goats out there who look an awful lot like sheep. They do the same things that I do. They behave the same way I do. But Jesus says they're really goats. Okay. So what do we make of this? How, how can this be? How can this be? So here's how we're going to approach this. We're going to extract two things out of this passage that we read today. Two things. Okay. These are the, 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 the things that these verse, two things that this verse tells, at least two things that we're going to focus on. And these verses tell us the characteristics of an authentic Christian and how to know that you're one of them. These are the characteristics of an authentic Christian and how to know if you're one of them. Can you all read that? Okay. It's still pretty clear. Okay. Good. Because if any of you struggle with this verse, uh, that's going to be your main question. Anyone who struggles with this verse is going to have this question. Uh, I, I don't know whether or not I'm one of those people that Jesus will say, nice try. I never knew you. I don't know. <coughs> Excuse me. Now it's going to take us a few minutes to unpack uh, some of this. So just bear with me. Um, and unfortunately, Things probably might get a little bit more terrifying before they get better. But again, hopefully we'll, we'll land it in a spot that makes you feel okay, have peace about it in your heart and your mind. Again, this is what Jesus is telling them. He says this in verse 22. Ah, coffee. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did not prophesy. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare, I never knew you. Okay, so these are the people who, who uh, call Jesus Lord. But there's more here than meets the eye. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew people knew God as Elohim. Elohim. That was a generic Hebrew name uh, for God, you know, Elohim. But in Exodus 3, Exodus 3, God comes to Moses wanting to enter into a sort of a, we, we call a personal relationship with his people. And it reveals to him the, the personal name of God, which is, do you know this one? Yahweh. Okay, Yahweh. This is the unutterable name of, of God. That's what the word is in Hebrew. So, so then many years later, Greek-speaking Jews uh, translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek so they could read it and understand it. And when they got to every place where the name Yahweh showed up, the personal name of God, they translated it as, look, I'm learning Greek, you guys. <laughs> Kurios, okay, kurios, the, the, the Greek word for Lord, okay? So when Jesus is talking here, all of this would be in Greek. All this would be in Greek, and he's saying that on the last day, the final judgment, that these people come to Jesus, and they're calling him kurios, kurios. They're calling him Lord. So the word Lord there in this passage isn't just a generic greeting like Lord, you know, the Lord of the manor, or Lord of the, the house, right? What, what, this, what this means carries very clearly is that Jesus is saying, these are people who believe that I'm divine, Elohim, okay? They're calling me by my divine name. These are confessing people confessing people. They acknowledge the deity of Christ. And he says, I don't know you. See, isn't that kind of scary? Is it just me? It's kind of scary. It's kind of scary. Okay. So first off, these are confessing people, confessing people. And, and maybe you're thinking right now, isn't it enough to confess Christ to be considered amongst the sheep? Does anyone have a quick answer to that? 
There's a verse in James that tells us even the demons believe and shudder. So being able to confess, that's, that's still not enough, okay? Confessing people. These are confessing people. So far, so good. And that is in James, right? Is that in James? Can someone check me on that? But I think it is. So far, so good. Now, what you might wonder next at this point, if these people aren't in fact authentic believers, uh, that is the Lord doesn't know them, how is it that they're able to cast out demons and do mighty works in his name? Does anyone want to try and take a stab at that one? If these people are not authentic, if they are not numbered amongst the sheep, how are they casting out demons and doing mighty works in his name? Anyone have an answer for that one? Trudy says she has no idea. Thank you, Trudy. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. Evil, okay, Trudy's wondering if it has something to do with evil spiritual power. It's a good, good thought, good thought. Maybe evil, evil spirits casting out evil spirits? And uh, Jesus said the same thing. He says a house divided itself can't stand, okay? So how is this, how is this possible? Todd, you have something? The name of Christ is the power. Were you just gonna say more? Because that's a wonderful answer. The name of Christ. There's power in the name of Christ. Does, does anyone know? Is that a, that's a hymn, isn't it? There's power in the name, or so, I can't remember if that's it. Power of the blood, power of the blood. When uh, this is the illustration I like to use for this because uh, it, 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 it sort of uh, puts it on display when my children were younger. One of the rules around my house, and many of you that have known me well have heard this before, but uh, so bear with me. But one of the rules that I had when my children were little and they were running around playing in the house, I said, No playing with doors. I don't want you playing with doors. Why? Because what they would do is they would run around the house like kids do. And okay, you, we tolerate that. That's fine. They're little boys. You, love, you want to get them their energy out. So they're running around the house. And what do they do? Then they run through one door and they shut it behind them to try and keep the other person from catching up. Why don't I like that? Number one, it makes a big racket. But what's, what's the second reason I don't like that? Be careful, little fingers, where you put them in doorways because I could just see that happening. And it just, the thought of it terrified me is that one day one of their little fingers would get pinched inside of a doorway. And then, you know, uh, I don't know what would happen then because I had this rule that said no playing with doors. Another element to my no playing with doors decree was that uh, even if there was no, if there was plenty of distance between you and the other, the other kid, if you went into a room and then shut the door and locked it, no, no, that is also part of my no, no playing with doors degree. I don't want you behind a locked door, full stop. To this day, I don't want you behind a locked door. Don't lock the doors in the house. I wanna know what's going on because I'm a nosy dad. <laughs> so don't lock the doors. And so what would happen was inevitably they're running around the house or chasing each other. And one of them goes in the door and then locks it and they bang on the door, open the door. One brother says to the other and the other brother says, no. What does the other brother then say? But dad said, no playing with doors. And then what happens? What'd you say? Call dad. Call dad. <laughs> they shouldn't even have to call dad at that point. And many times they didn't because they invoked the name of the father. <laughs> they invoked my name. It was not, it, they, weren't, they weren't opening the door on their own authority. Whose authority were they invoking? Invoking mine. And it's the same way. There's power in the name of Christ. And even if it's a, even if it's a false 
person, a false teacher invoking the name of Christ. It's the power of Christ itself. And this is something you have to understand too, that even when the, when the apostles were casting out demons, they weren't doing it by their own authority. They were still doing it by the, that's what an apostleship is. It's been, they've been granted authority to, to act on, on the behalf of Christ, legitimately on the behalf, behalf of Christ. The power that, 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 that cancels sin, the power that, that breaks down barriers, the power that, that uh, casts demons out is the power of Christ itself, okay? And so what this is telling us that even, even there's certain contexts where, where people act and behave and, and wander around and, and are among us in the church, they're doing all the things that the church people do. And it's very difficult to distinguish between sometimes who's real and who's not, because again, they have all the marks and characteristics that you might find in a, in a genuine Christian. Yeah, Trudy, go ahead. Yeah, that, okay, what Trudy is saying is, is asking, do, do, do believers and non-believers have the power to do the same things in the name of Jesus? And that's a really good question. And I, I can only go with what we have here in the scriptures, and that the, it seems to indicate the fact that Jesus is saying that yes, maybe not always, but because that because you and I have also the, the, the benefit of, of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we know how to use, if I can say this, the, the power of the name of Christ properly. Okay, and so that in and of itself will give it, get us further down the road, I, we'll say, than, than a false prophet who only uses it in a temporary setting. Because even, even what you saw this morning in Acts, okay, you had this, this, this false prophet who might have been doing miraculous things in the name of Jesus, right? But what happened when he encountered someone that had a legitimate authority and power and privilege to use the name of Jesus? He went blind. He, his mouth was shut, okay? So what I, how I would characterize that is, Perhaps, but maybe just for a little, for a short season versus what a, an apostle or a disciple of Jesus might have the, the power and ability to do for the, out their entire redemptive history. Okay. Does that make a little bit more sense? That's right. And at any time Jesus wants, that's, this is what's, what's mysterious about a lot of this too, is that anytime Jesus wants, he can shut anyone down, but yet he allows some, some of these things to happen. He allows false prophets to exist. Why does he do that? It's a great question, but you can, you can better believe that there's a bigger picture happening here, a bigger redemptive purpose for him allowing that. And that's why we have it in the book of Acts. We got to see the whole story. And so you have to wrap your mind around that with the understanding that it's, it's not always about the moment. It's not always what's happening in the moment. It's what's happening on the bigger redemptive scale. That's what, what uh, it's not, just, not to minimize the, the, the power of the moment, but again, there's always a bigger picture going on that, that maybe we're, we're not able to see past the immediacy of what's happening. So, but great question. Great questions. Okay. Yes, sir. Yeah. 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 That's right. One of the questions brought up here is that, is that, uh, uh, is that similar to using the name of the Lord in vain? And again, again, Todd, uh, Todd excuse me, uh, we, we heard Scott use that this morning in the, in the service. And again, I hate to spoil this for all of you that haven't been to the service yet, but he talked about the fact how some people use the name of the Lord 
for improper gain, for political purpose. You know, that's what this Simon Bar-Jesus uh, Bar was doing in, in uh, Acts chapter 13. He was using the name of Jesus, falsely, for political gain. It's the same thing. It's the same idea. He's given access just because he's using the name of Jesus, falsely even, okay? But again, on a temporary basis, all right? So far, so good? That was a lot, I know. Okay. Uh, again, these are people who are can be active in Christian activities and, uh, and they're prophesying, casting out demons and doing all, all the things that maybe we would consider uh, common in the church. Now, so here's where the rubber meets the road. What these verses are telling us is that it's possible to be a confessing person, to be one who invokes the name of God, and even in a familiar sense, to be someone who's active in Christian community. It's possible to do all of those things. Listen to what I'm saying. It's possible to do all of those things and still not be a Christian. Maybe you see where I'm going with this. It's possible to do all those things and still not be a Christian. Now, why is that frightening? Because again, some of these things are the very marks of a Christian. I think this is why Trudy brought up the point, because when a Christian is, is, uh, is typically a person who is a confessional person, they are one who calls on the name of the Lord and one who's active in church activity. So what this is telling us is these characteristics can be found in people that aren't saved. And quite simply, what that's telling us is that these aren't the things that saves a person. Calling on the name of the Lord like that, casting out demons and, and doing all this, that's not what saves you. And again, this is really, again, a difficult passage, but this is so elementary in, in the sense that it's really, it comes down to something really very simple. And I'm going to give it away before I even get there, but are you, whose power are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your power or in the power of someone else? That's what this whole thing boils down to. This is where it's headed. Okay, that's primarily what we're talking about here. The central theme here is not, is not this is not a verse that's meant to, to scare you and to make sure you're doing all the right things because you don't want to be one of those people that's left out. It's not about doing things. Actions and works are not the things that characterize an authentic Christian. Hang on, I know what some of you are thinking, but fruit, hang on, we're getting there, okay? So what are the things that mark a true Christian? Let's look back at our passage again. Christ tells us, uh, we're distracted with everything else around it, that says, not everyone who says to me, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father that is in heaven. Now, at first pass, you might read that and see and, and think, see, doing his will. I've got stuff to do, don't I? Right? Again, doing his will is not about doing stuff. That's the opposite of will, his will. Doing the will of the Father is a term that's been somewhat hijacked by the, the cultural Christian. We've taken that term to mean doing good things. You know, like we mentioned again, when we talked about sheeps and, and sheep and goats a, a couple of weeks back, you know, I'm feeding the homeless. I'm taking care of the least of these, or, or I'm, I'm not being selfish. I'm being faithful to my spouse. I'm preaching his word. I'm doing these things. And therefore I am doing his will. Are those things his will? Okay. Isn't it God's will that I feed the homeless? That, that I remain faithful to my wife or and preach the word. Yes, those things are his will, but that's not all it is. Those things are on the periphery. They're not the central point of his will. So what then, when you get down to brass tacks, does it mean to do the will of the father? Let's take it out of the spiritual realm for just a second. And again, 
many of you that know me by now have heard all of my uh, um, illustrations five times over. So uh, this is one of my favorites, but um, let's just say it's my wife's birthday today. It's not, but let's just say that it were, okay? I wanna make sure that my wife is happy. And though I should do that every single day, you know, on, on the day that it's her birthday, I really don't want to screw it up, right? So if I'm trying to please my wife and make her happy, and I want today to be her day, I want her to be able to do what she wants. And if I'm trying to do my wife's will, how do I do that? What does it take to do that? It's, it's not just a matter of finding out what she wants to do and going about doing it. There's something else going on that's more profound. If I'm trying to make my wife happy, and that's what I'm really trying to do, I want to uh, go out uh, for a steak because steak is very, very good. I love steak. I love steak. And I'm not just trying to get a free gift card somewhere. <laughs> I love steak. Steak is very special. But how does my wife feel about steak? She, it, I'm, it's almost heresy to say it, but she's, she doesn't like steak. She doesn't like steak. For her birthday, she may want Italian, okay? I told her she can choose she, wherever she wants to go, for dinner because it's her birthday. And even though I'm really craving steak, she wants Italian. Okay, she wants Italian, but, but, but steak, <laughs> come on. Have you ever had a really good bone-in ribeye? Oh man, that's the best. Okay, so what am I gonna do? I'm gonna take, I'm gonna take Tracy to Cane Prime because if you can't like a steak from Cane Prime, I mean, what is, what's, what's wrong, right? I'm gonna give her the best steak I can find in Nashville. I'm going to show her what a good steak is. And, and if she doesn't like steak now, she will after she tries this one, and, and it's going to be very, very good. So what have I done there? I, I, I took straight Tracy out for steak, but what did she want? She wanted Italian, okay? But, but I gave Tracy a really good steak. It's really very good, like the best you can find in Nashville. Do you see, you see how good I am? You see how good I am? Shouldn't she be happy with that? No, you better believe it, right? You see, I went to a lot of trouble finding a good steak. I spent a lot of money for, for, for trying to find her a good steak. I, sacrifi I sacrificed a lot to give her a good steak. I did so much for her here, but let me ask a question. Whose will have I accomplished? I've accomplished my own will, my will, right? Tracy didn't want steak, I did. And if I really want to do what Tracy wanted, if I really wanted Tracy's will, what should I, what should I do with my craving for steak? Just let it go. I should let it go. Let it go. It needs to be set aside, simply stated. Simply stated. Doing his will chiefly means not doing yours. Doing his will chiefly means not doing yours. Doing his will means submitting yours to his. Doing his will means this is, this, is, this is how all profound Christianity boils down to this. You're God and I'm not. That's what the entirety of Christianity boils down to. You're God. I'm not. I'm not. Now, this passage is saying here, there are people who thinks, think, I'm a very good person. I'm a very good person. And God should be pleased with me because I'm doing many good things. I'm feeding people, I'm helping people, I'm faithful to my spouse, I do a lot for people, and steak is delicious. You see what I'm saying? Doing the things, even, even as good as they are, if that's not what he asked you to do, it's, it's not really his will. 
It's great to do all those things, but, but what if what you're actually doing is as a lot of good deeds in order to cover up the fact that you will not let go of your own will. And, and then you're not really doing his will. You have to get to a place where you say, I, I give up the right to determine what's right and what's wrong for me. I give up that right. He's God and I'm not. Okay, so that's the first thing that this passage tells us about being a Christian. The real deal. The person that, that's in Christ knows the, uh, that uh, the person that knows Christ does the will of God. The person that knows Christ sets aside his will and says, your will be done, not mine. Okay? Now, as I say that, there might be some of you who are thinking, uh, well, that's just great because uh, I'm, I'm lousy at doing his will. I'm lousy at it. I'm not very good at, at doing his will. I, I know his will is best. I know I'm supposed to surrender my will to his. I know he's God and I'm not, but I'm actually terrible at doing that. So am I a sheep or a goat? Let me, let me tell you something that might, might come as a, a surprise. A real Christian is somebody who says, Lord, I seem to be failing quite a bit. That's a mark of an authentic Christian. Lord, I seem to be failing quite a bit. That's what a real Christian says. But they also say, but I know your son died for me. Your son died my death, lived the life that I owe, paid my penalty, and welcomed me into his family. They say both, both things. Okay, see, the one who isn't really a Christian holds up his own good works, holds up his own good works and relies upon them for acceptance before the Father. The, the, the real Christian holds them up, holds up the work of Christ, holds up the work of Christ, what he did, what he did, not me. That's what the authentic Christian does. And the fact that you're even able, if you're even able to distinguish when you're not surrendering your will to his is a great indicator that you're a real Christian. I got great news for you. But you can't be satisfied with simply recognizing the fact that you're not able to surrender your will to his. You, uh, um, you have to also say, okay, I've acted in rebellion, duly noted, I'm a Christian. That's not enough just to say that. Maybe you've heard it said that, that Christ accepts you as you are, but he's not content to leave you where you are. This is part of the process too. And it's a struggle. It's hard. It's hard. And the fact that you recognize that it's hard is really good. Philippians 2.6 says, uh, and I'm sure of this. This is what it says. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It's, it's, there's an acknowledgement here that there's work to be done. It's an ongoing process. It's not something that says, okay, I've acknowledged it. I've confessed it. I recognize I'm terrible at following his will. I'm in. That's it. Yeah, you know what? You are justified immediately, but there's still work to be done. It's a lifelong process. There's still work to be done. It's his work that he started, he'll finish. And he asked you to be an active participant in this too growing towards the day of completion. Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Okay, and again, we have to distinguish here between being justified and sanctified. You're justified the moment you put your, your trust in Christ. You are accepted before God the moment you put your trust in Christ. But then there's this ongoing process that he calls you into. He could have, he could have done it all himself. He could have said, bam, you're sanctified. You're good. You're perfect now. But instead he says, I'm inviting you into this process and I want you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay? So submitting your will to his is not easy. It's difficult. It's hard. That's what it means to work out your, your, your salvation with fear and trembling. And this is why in the same chapter where we find our hard saying, we see Jesus explaining this. Verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, uh, enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So it's not easy to submit your will to his. Granted, it's not easy. It's not easy. You may be terrible at submitting your will to his, but his will is to grow you and to make you better at submitting your will. He will complete it. He will complete it. Does that much make sense? Any questions or thoughts so far on that much? It's the hardest part. The hardest part is, is acknowledging the fact, look, I'm terrible at this, but then recognizing that there's still work to be done too. But you're saved. You're saved immediately, but there's still work to be done. And you can't just sit down and, and relax and kick back. Whoo, I'm saved. Yes, Debbie. The hardest part of that is the word few. Yeah, because now we're right back to where we started, few. Because again, am I amongst the few? Am I numbered amongst the few? And again, most, most. And I, I, it grieves me to say this, but most will hold up their own works and say, now am I accepted before God? And really, this is what just amazes me. Christianity is so profoundly simple. It's really just setting your own abilities, your own works aside, your own good treasures and own works and, and, and picking up Christ's. It's really that simple, but yet it's so difficult. It's so difficult to the point that we are numbered amongst the few over here that acknowledge the fact that I am terrible at this and I have to rely upon someone else's work. That's, that's the narrow gate. That's the narrow gate. Okay. Uh, what's the other thing? Any other questions or thoughts? Yeah, yeah Spencer. Uh, I think the narrow gate is, is not, is specifically referring to the church, the, what we would call the invisible church. You know, those who are truly saved, those are the, is that what you're asking or? Mm-hmm. Could be. Yeah, because there are people with this verses, these verses are telling us there are people inside the church that are uh, proclaiming the name of Jesus, but are still trying to make that um, sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Compatible with going through the wide gate. I'm proclaiming the name of Jesus, but still I'm trying to go through this wide gate and making it more palatable for, for the world. We see that all the time, you know, I proclaim the name of Christ, but hey, it's, it's really about this wide open gate here, okay? Um, yeah, yes, sir, Todd. Individual? Yeah, what, uh, what Todd is saying is that he's heard teaching on this, that defi when uh, you start do, uh, sort of uh, taking apart the word narrow in these verses, that it really means uh, individual. Uh, it's, it's more akin to an individual than, um, than something else. Yeah. Right. It's not a group thing. Mm -hmm. A one-on-one. -on -one. Very profound. All right. What's the, uh, let's see how much time we got left. A few minutes here. What's the other thing that uh, this verse is trying to tell us about being a real Christian? This is the remedy. 
There's a remedy for this. Uh, that's how we started. He starts with warning us about false prophets. Then he describes what a false prophet is. Then he gives us the remedy for being a false prophet. He, he lays it out for us right here. Immediately after, this is immediately after the hard saying. Matthew 7, 24 and following says, everyone who hears these words, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house. But it did not fail, uh, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and fell. And it's, and uh, it was great, uh, excuse me, and great was the fall of it. Okay. I don't know how many of you grow up listening to that, that song or singing the song, you know, the wise man built his house upon the rock. When we generally take a lesson away from that, that has something along, you build your life on Jesus and your life will go well. If you don't, it's going to be like this shifting sand. And, and while that's true, I, I'm just blown away by the placement of this. This little, this little uh, parable of sorts falls right after this hard saying. You know, and so because it's almost like, you know, there's going to be people saying, I, I don't want to be numbered amongst those that say, Lord, Lord, I, I want to be I want to be amongst the real. I want to be amongst the sheep. So how do I do that? And then he says this. And what is so profound about this is he's telling you the remedy. This is a remedy not to just build your house, generally speaking, but to rely upon the righteousness of Christ himself. Relying on the righteousness of Christ himself is, is, is likened to building a house upon rock. And again, I don't know uh, how many of you all, uh, Tracy and I, we, we just yesterday, we were in, in the uh, in Home Depot looking for appliances because, you know, a lot of ours are, I've seen their better days. You know, literally we have all our appliances are 16 years or older, older or old or older, and they start to, they start to show their age after a while. But you know what? Thankfully, our house is built on a good foundation. I'm not worried about it sinking into the dirt, though that does happen from time to time with houses out there, but it happens. And that's what he's saying that, look, the appliances may break down from time to time and that's okay. But if your house is built upon the rock, the righteousness of Christ, if it's built upon the righteousness of Christ, you have a sure footing. Even though the things above it may crumble from time to time, the foundation is what holds it in place. And this is again, the mark of an authentic Christian. It's what are you building your life upon? What are you basing it upon? Where's your foundation sitting? If it's on the, the righteousness of Christ and what he does, his abilities, his ability to present you before the Lord, uh, before God is faultless. If that's what you're relying upon, I've got great news for you. You are, you are numbered amongst the, uh, the few. You're numbered amongst those that, that say, uh, come into the joy, enter into the joy of your master. That's the good news. And that's, where, that's what's so wonderful about how he, how he follows up such a hard saying. He follows up a hard saying with, look, here's the remedy. Build your life upon Christ, upon my work. And then you don't have to worry about the other things. In Galatians, we read about the fruits of the spirit. We speak of all those things we mentioned, saving people, loving your spouse, casting out demons. All those things could be characterized as the fruits of the spirit. All of them can be categorized as love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are the fruits of the Spirit, but note that Paul calls them the fruits of the Spirit, okay? It's the byproduct of the Spirit. They're the effect, not the thing itself. And that's the distinction that Christ is making here in this passage. Are all these good things that you're doing, is that what you're relying upon to justify you before God? Is that your foundation? 
Because if that's your foundation, your good works are, are really what you're resting upon. I'm going to say to you at the end, I, I never knew you. You know, I can't say it more simply than that, that if you struggle with this passage, what are you relying upon to find your justification before God Almighty? If you're relying upon the great things you've done and will do, then that passage is saying something very serious to you. On the other hand, if you're, if you're needy and you recognize the fact that, that you do fall short and that occasionally the appliances do break down, right? Try as you might, left to your own devices, you can't please them, then I've got good news for you. You have the opportunity to rely upon someone else's record, someone else's foundation, someone else's ability to, to, to save you and please God. And those that build the, on that foundation won't hear Christ tell them, depart, I never knew you. They'll, they'll hear something else. They'll, they'll, they'll hear him say, enter into the joy of your master. That's the good news to all of it. And I hope, again, it is a difficult passage to swallow, but it, it's such a profoundly simple remedy. Just rely on Christ and his work, not your own. That's the whole thing. That's what the whole verse comes down to. Don't rely on your own works, as good as they might be. Rely on the work of Christ. And that's what makes you favorable before the Father. All right, 1051. What questions might you have or comments uh, before we dismiss? I got to help in liturgy this morning too. So I need at least five minutes to get over to the, the sanctuary, but I'm happy to entertain your questions if you have any. Anyone online? Yes, Trudy. Yeah, uh, curious, huh? It is. It is. Uh, I um, posted all three of those to the uh, Christ Presbyterian has sort of a uh, secondary podcast channel, and I'm happy to send those out. I can send you a link for, for all three of those. Good topics in, in that, uh, that three-week series, but uh, yeah, there's access to it through Christ Pres's channel. And, and the same channel that I uh, use to send out these lesson, lessons uh, weekly, I put my lecture from there on that too, which was on uh, miracles and prophecy. But yes, sir, Todd. A hundred percent. Todd is asking if this is uh, the basis of, of the Reformation. And yes, that's what it came down to. What, with the, the final straw that broke, broke the camel's back in the Reformation was the fact that they were selling indul indulgences and essentially selling a, a right, uh, a sacrifice you know, to be found acceptable in the sight of God. And, and again, the, the reformers were like, no. That's what this whole verses, these verses are talking about. It's not upon your, it's not your works. It's not the good deeds that you're doing. It's not the sacrifices that you're making. It's not that you're, it's not the fact that you say, Lord, Lord, you know, which is a very, the way that's characterized, Lord, Lord, that repetitive nature. I mean, it's intimacy. It's not the fact that you're doing those things. It's, it's the record of Christ. You're justified by, by grace through faith alone, not by indulgences that you purchased at the market. Yeah. Yes, sir. Brits. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, Brintz's question was, would you say that your will and God's will, uh, uh, that they sort of come closer together the more you go through sanctification? Is that the... Yeah. 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 He was chief of sinners. Yeah. Yeah. 
right. Oh, it's so profound, Brintz. That is really very profound. Uh, Brintz is again talking about the fact that he brought up Paul, uh, that uh, as, as the more sanctified he went, the more, the more further down the line he got, not only did he uh, uh, sort of align himself or was, was God's will more, was he more aligned with God's will, but he also became more aware of uh, the dreadfulness of his own sin too, uh, both past and currently. And I think that that is something that you will go through in the, the sanctification process is that the more you realize, the closer you, you get to, to God and his holiness, uh, the more you realize that I'm not holy. And the greatest example I can give you is from Isaiah chapter six. So, and again, Isaiah, prophet of God, prophet of God has to be a pretty good guy. Uh, when he is in the, in the presence of the holiness of Christ, what does he do? He calls a curse down upon himself more aware of the fact that I'm dreadfully sinful, dreadfully so. And again, the closer you get to God, the more you realize that, that, yeah. Yeah, that's right. At some point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Paul, that's what call. Mm -hmm. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. Mm -hmm. And that was at the end of his chief of sinners is what he called himself, you know? Uh, And again, the more, and again, any encounter that you see, Old Testament or otherwise, when people are drawing near, near to, the nearer they get to, to Christ, the nearer they get to the holiness of God, the more undone they become, the more dreadfully aware they are of their own unholiness. It's very profound. Let me close this in prayer. And then uh, again, if you have any other questions, feel free to ask in, uh, uh, or send me an email throughout the week or, or call me or, or come by for a visit. I'm happy to entertain your, your questions there too. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holiness. Uh, And we thank you that uh, what we have to rely upon uh, is a solid rock. It's a solid, sure foundation that will not be moved uh, and help us to lean into that foundation every single day of our lives more and more increasingly. So make us like your son and help us to ditch our own wills, help us to to set our own will and our own pride and and everything that we we think is worth something. Help us to set set that aside and rely wholly uh, on the, the work and love of Christ the love that Christ had for us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you all. Thanks online folks.